Well, good morning, everyone. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, as we talk about this subject of Israel on prophecy, it seems that there's much confusion in the world today about Israel and what we should be looking for. And so we pray that you'd give us wisdom. We pray you'd show us the truth and that the truth would set us free. Lord, free to follow you, free to love you, free to do your will, and free to know the truth so that we are not deceived by the things that are going on. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice a news article in Newsweek magazine on November 1st of 1999 as they were getting ready for the new millennium to begin in 2000, there was this article that took place in Newsweek magazine, and it said, the predominant issue in Christian prophecy is the return of the Jews to the Holy Land and the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. For true believers, ground zero for apocalyptic zealotry remains the city of Jerusalem. And so here we see that all eyes at that time were on Jerusalem. And we could ask ourselves why, and there are probably many reasons for that, but one of the big ones was clear, and that is that literally millions of Christians who are interested in Bible prophecy believe that earth's final events will one day center around the Middle East, Jerusalem, and the Jews. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is this, is Israel the center of apocalyptic prophecy? Should our attention be directed towards Israel or should it be directed somewhere else? What does the Bible teach us about Israel? And if we're going to answer that question, we have to first start with an even more basic question than that, and that is, who was Israel? Well, you'll remember back in the book of Genesis that there was a man by the name of Jacob. And Jacob was the son of Isaac. And Isaac was the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of the Jews. And Jacob means deceiver. And you see here in this picture on the screen, Jacob kneeling before his aging father, who is now blind and not able to see, And Jacob has got some funny thing on his hand there. You see, his twin brother Esau was a very hairy man. And Jacob, the deceiver, has not only deceived his brother out of his birthright, but now he is coming before his father Isaac and he is trying to deceive him, trick him into giving him the blessing. They were twins, but Esau was born first and the firstborn always received the family blessing. And so now Jacob is deceiving his father and in fact the trickery worked. His father gave him the family blessing. But as a result of that, Jacob needed to flee for his life because Esau was considering killing his brother for what he had done. 
And so Jacob was gone for more than 20 years. And of course, he had married and all of that. But the day came when Jacob was going to be reunited with his brother Esau after having been apart for so many years. And when that day finally came, Jacob was afraid that his brother was still going to hold a grudge against him. And so he sent his family ahead and he stayed behind one night by himself. And when he did, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord came and was wrestling with him. And Jacob was in fear for his life. He didn't know who this man was, but he felt that he was fighting for his life. And so they wrestled all through the night. But right before the dawn, the Bible says that this man touched Jacob on his hip and his hip was immediately put out of place. And that's when he realized that he was not wrestling with an ordinary man, but he was wrestling with the Lord himself. And so now Jacob began to wrestle even harder, not to get away this time, but to hold on. And the Lord said to him, you must let me go. It's almost the breaking of the day. And Jacob said to him, I will not let you go until or unless you bless me. You see, Jacob needed assurance. He needed the Lord's blessing. He needed to make sure that his brother wasn't going to kill him. And so they wrestled through the night. And in Genesis 32, verse 28, it tells us that the Lord said to him, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but you shall be called Israel. And so that night, Jacob received a new name, And that new name was Israel. And Israel means overcomer. It means someone who has been victorious. And so Israel is the spiritual name that Jacob received. And he was then known as the father of the nation of Israel. We learn there in Genesis that Jacob had 12 sons and they became known as the sons of Israel and they became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel and that's the nation of Israel that we know and we speak of today. I want you to notice though that in the New Testament that the Bible makes a distinction between Israel and his children. And I'd like you to notice this, so turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church in Rome. He's speaking to us. And I want you to notice what he says, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says to us, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. 
for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so here we see the Apostle Paul telling us that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Did you catch that? Then he begins to talk about the children of promise. And he refers to the children that will come from Isaac as being the children of the promise. Now I want you to notice something that Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 39. He says... In speaking to the Jewish leaders who were questioning him, he says, If you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works of Abraham. In other words, he was saying to them, You must not be the children of Abraham, because if you were the children of Abraham, you'd be doing what? You'd be doing the things that Abraham did, right? And then you go to another place in John chapter 1, verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael, and he said Nathanael was clearly in harmony with God, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed. You remember that? Or another way of saying that is, Behold, an Israelite in truth, or a true Israelite. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18, Paul says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Now let me ask you a question. Why did Paul need to uh, apply a qualification there as to who he was talking about? He was clearly talking about Israel of the flesh, right? And the reason that he needed to make that distinction is because that the Bible reveals that there are two Israels. Notice in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16, that Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. And I'm going to pause there for a moment. Because I want to ask you a question. When the Bible is talking about the group that is identified as the circumcision, who is it talking about? Talking about the Jews, right? And then when the Bible is talking about those who are uncircumcised, who is that talking about? The Greeks or the Gentiles, right? So let's put that in there. For in Christ Jesus, neither Jew nor Gentile avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the what? The Israel of God. And so now clearly Paul is talking about a different group of people other than the Israel of the flesh. Right? The Israel of the flesh are the literal descendants of Abraham, of the genealogy of Abraham. And then the Israel of God are the descendants of Abraham's faith. 
they believed like Abraham believed, right? In other words, both Jew and Gentile who have faith in Jesus Christ, that is the Israel of God. And we saw that point in Romans chapter 9 in verse 6 when we read, For they are not all Israel, that is, they are not all the Israel of God, who are the Israel after the flesh. And so that's pretty revealing, isn't it? It says that not everyone who is a descendant of Abraham is actually a true Israelite. And this creates a bit of confusion for people, who are Christians who are studying prophecy today, who primarily believe that all eyes should be on the physical nation of Israel, that they are ground zero for apocalyptic zealotry. But we need to notice what the Bible says. The Bible reveals that there are actually two Israels. Did you catch that? Two Israels. Notice in Romans chapter 2.28 in our scripture reading that Paul says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. In other words, he's talking about that group of people, the Israel in the flesh, the, the nation of Israel over there in Palestine, those who are descendants of the genealogy of Abraham. But then he goes on to say, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. You see, throughout the New Testament, Paul reveals that there are two Israels. There's the Israel of the flesh, those who believed that they received the promises of God based on the fact that they were of the genealogy of Abraham. And then there is the Israel of the spirit or spiritual Israel, those who believed like Abraham believed, those who have the faith of Abraham, not the genealogy of Abraham. You see the difference there? So I have a question for you. To which of the two Israels, Israel of the flesh or spiritual Israel, were all of the promises of God given to? Which group? To answer that question, we need to understand an amazing prophecy that so clearly shows that Jesus is the Messiah that Jewish rabbis put a curse on anyone who would attempt to determine its meaning. Because remember, the Jews do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but this prophecy so perfectly addresses the fact and shows that Jesus is the Messiah that the rabbis wrote this curse in Talmudic law. They said, May the bones of the hands and the bones of the fingers decay and decompose of him who turns the pages of the book of Daniel to find out the time of Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, and may his memory rot from off the face of the earth forever. That's a pretty powerful curse, isn't it? They want to make sure that none of us read Daniel chapter 9, right? Well, I'm not going to take the time to go there this morning because we already covered that prophecy in Jesus on prophecy, but I do want to do a quick review with you. 
because you'll remember that this is the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel 9 is just an extension of Daniel chapter 8. And you'll remember that it was in Daniel 8 that Daniel was given the 2300-day prophecy. And he was trying to understand it, and the angel Gabriel was trying to give him that understanding, but Daniel fainted. Daniel passed out. It was so powerful. And so the angel had to leave, but later he came back in Daniel 9, and he begins to give him understanding of this 2300-day prophecy, and he says it's going to start with the 70-week prophecy. And so we looked at that, and we know that 70 weeks, and there are seven days in a week, so this is 490 days, but we saw in Numbers 14, we saw in Ezekiel for that, that a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. So this was really talking about 490 years. And we also saw that the beginning of the prophecy was from the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And we looked at Ezra 7 and we saw that command. And we saw from history that that command was given in 457 B.C., And so the prophecy says that there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks until Messiah the Prince. And the reason that that was broken out is because it actually took them seven prophetic weeks. It took them 49 years to build the walls of Jerusalem. So you have seven weeks plus 62, that's 69 weeks. And we saw that at the end of that 69 weeks that the Messiah should show up on the scene. And we saw that the word Messiah means anointed one and that Jesus was anointed at his baptism. And we saw that that was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And history shows us that that happened in 27 AD. That's when Jesus was baptized. But that leaves one week left of the 70-week prophecy. And we saw that during that week that Messiah was going to be cut off in the middle of the week. We saw that he was going to put an end to sacrifices and oblations. And we also saw that he was going to make a covenant with the people for that one week. And we did see that right in the middle of that week that Jesus was in fact cut off, wasn't he? He was crucified right on time. And that first three and a half years, he confirmed that covenant himself in person. But then for the last three and a half years... He confirmed that covenant through the church. The apostles were sharing that information. And then we saw that in 34 AD, at the end of the 70-week prophecy, that's when one of the first deacons by the name of Stephen was stoned by the Sanhedrin. He gave a powerful address showing them that they had killed the Messiah and they came at him with one accord. How's that for unity? 
They came at him and they stoned him to death. But then we also see that that was the end of this 70 weeks of probation for Israel. And in 34 AD, when Stephen was stoned, that's when the Apostle Peter has his vision. He goes and sees Cornelius. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. We see Saul of Tarsus having his conversion and becoming Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, and now the probation is over and the gospel goes to the entire world. And I want to just point out, though, during that 70 weeks of probation, that there were some things that Israel was supposed to do. They were supposed to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make reconciliation for iniquity, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now I ask you the question, did the Jewish nation meet the conditions of the probationary period? Did they finish the transgression? Did they make an end of sin? Did they make reconciliation? Not as a nation, they didn't, right? But we do see that the 70 weeks were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He finished the transgression. He put an end of sin. He made reconciliation for iniquity. He sealed up the vision and prophecy. And when He returned to heaven, He anointed the most holy place with His own blood. And so the 70-week prophecy was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who became the new Israel, the overcomer on our behalf. He is the spiritual father of Israel. He is the true Israel. And therefore, He is the seed of Abraham. And that's why in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says, And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, right? So the question that was asked is to which of the Israels was the promises of God given? Were they given to physical Israel or were they given to spiritual Israel? And hopefully that we see from those verses that It was to spiritual Israel. We see that Jesus was the only one who fulfilled the conditions of the probationary period. And so this has to be talking about spiritual Israel. Well, let's pause for a moment and let's look at this from yet another angle. You'll remember as we put our spiritual glasses on and we look at the nation of Israel the physical nation, you'll remember that there was a time when they were slaves in Egypt and God raised up a man by the name of Moses to go to Pharaoh and to ask him to let the people go. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, it says that God said to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn, right? So here we see that the Bible is clearly showing that the nation of Israel was referred to as God's firstborn. 
right? That's the physical nation of Israel that that's talking about. If you go to Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, it says, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. And we know that that vine that came out of Egypt, that was the nation of Israel, right? The physical nation that came out was called a vine in this particular verse. And this is clearly talking about the physical nation of Israel. We also see in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3, that it says, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And so here we see that the nation of Israel is referred to as the servant of God. And that's talking about the physical nation. We see in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect, one in whom my soul delights. Again, we see the nation of Israel referred to as my servant. Again, in 42, verse 1, it continues, it says, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And so here again, this is talking about the nation of Israel. Isaiah 41, verse 8 says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So again, we see the nation of Israel being referred to as my servant. And now we add to that as the seed of Abraham. So clearly this is talking about the nation of Israel. You go to Hosea 11 verse 1 and it talks about how Israel was brought by the mighty hand of God through the ten plagues, Moses leading them out of Egypt. And it says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So here again, we see this talking about the nation of Israel being referred to now as my son. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes, All our fathers were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so when they came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, and essentially they were baptized in that sea. And then after that, you'll remember that they had to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they brought back a faithless report. They couldn't go into the promised land. And so for 40 years, there they are in the desert. So let's take a look at all of these things that it's saying about the nation of Israel. It says that the nation of Israel is my son, my firstborn, a vine out of Egypt, my servant, the seed of Abraham. They were baptized in the sea and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, remember, as we were going through Jesus on prophecy, that we talked about the real literal things that happened in the Old Testament and how we have to bring them forward into the New Testament. And what was real and literal back then is now spiritual and symbolic in the New Testament. And how everything in the Old Testament was simply pointing forward to a greater reality that we need to discover in the New now, let's look at a few verses then 
And the first one here is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. And it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Now, who is this talking about, this little child? Talking about Jesus, that's right. You'll remember when uh, Herod talked to the wise men and they told them that they were looking for a child who would become king. You'll remember that he made a decree that all of the male children, two and under, were to be killed. And here we see that Joseph is told in a dream that he needs to go and take the child and his mother and flee down into Egypt. And you'll remember them doing that. It's interesting, too, that before this, there was a man named Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery and went down into Egypt. And now you have another man by the name of Joseph who is fleeing down into Egypt as well. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now hold on a minute. We see here that this is not talking about the nation of Israel, but this is actually talking about Jesus, isn't it? Jesus Christ had to be called out of Egypt. It says there that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so here we see that Hosea 11 verse 1 was only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen? In Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, it speaks of Jesus and it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. So here we see Jesus being referred to as the firstborn. John chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So here we see that it's Jesus who is referred to as the vine. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 16 through 18, it says, He warned them not to make Him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant. Now we see Jesus is the one who is being referred to as the servant of God. And do you remember the promises that God gave to Abraham? In Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, he said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. So who are the seeds then of Abraham, right? But then Paul says in Galatians 3.16, But now to Abraham and his, what's that word? Seed were the promises made. Notice he doesn't say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Keep following along with me here. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says that it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And you'll remember that after his baptism that Jesus went out into the wilderness for how long? 
for 40 days, right? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. So let's see what the Bible says. The Bible is telling us that Jesus is my son, my firstborn, a vine out of Egypt, my servant, the seed of Abraham. He was baptized, after which he spent 40 days in the wilderness. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of the true Israel. And that's why the Bible says that if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because Jesus fulfilled that which was spoken of. You see, Jesus fulfilled all of the righteous requirements that were given as a probationary period for the nation and the children of Israel. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For all of the promises of God in Him are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. So in Christ, all of the promises of God are fulfilled. And Paul says, not that the word has taken no effect. It's not that the literal Israel is to be looked to for Bible prophecy. It has been replaced by spiritual Israel. And we have a new spiritual father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, I want to take a look at some of those texts that deal with Israel as a nation being God's favored people, right? Because you wouldn't have all of these Christians today who are looking over in the Middle East, looking over to Israel for prophecy to be fulfilled if they didn't feel that all of the nation of Israel is God's still favored people, right? So you get the idea here. This is where futurism says that there's this sinister man who's going to come on the scenes at the end of time and he's going to make a treaty with Israel and they're going to be able to rebuild the temple and then halfway through the treaty he's going to go and sit in the temple and claim to be God. This is where all of this ties in together because the Bible says in Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6, God says, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. And so people say, see, God has chosen Jerusalem. That's his people. That's where he's going to be. And that is an unconditional prophecy that's going to be there for all time. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 16, it says, For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. And so there are people that say, See, this prophecy dealing with the nation of Israel is something that is going to last forever. We see the same thing in Second Chronicles 33, verse 7. It says, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, I will put my name forever. And so there are people that look at those verses and they say, See, it is an unconditional prophecy that the nation of Israel would always be God's chosen people. So the question is, how could it be that God could say 
that I want to place my name there forever, and yet ultimately that their probation would end after the 490 years, the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9, and they would no longer be the chosen vessel of God. I want to show you a couple of things, so turn with me first to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah's in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. You start off with uh, Hosea, and then you get into Joel and Amos, and then right after Amos is a little book called Obadiah, and then right after that is Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, and I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice, starting in verse 1, what it says. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here we see God telling Jonah, go and tell Nineveh, I'm going to wipe you out. And is that what happened? No. Why not? Because there are prophecies in the Bible that are conditional, right? You can't take that one passage and you can't say, well, Jonah wasn't a true prophet then because it didn't come to pass. We have to realize, looking at the whole picture, that God is a God of love. God is a God of salvation, right? The Bible very clearly says that if we repent of our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God intended to wipe out Nineveh, but what happened? The Bible says that from the king on down to the lowest slave, they all repented of their sin. And that's God's desire for all of us, right? And so since they repented, the Bible says that God relented and He did not destroy them at that time. It was a conditional prophecy. It's the same condition for all of us. We're all sinners. We're all going to have to pay the penalty for our sin unless we repent of our sin and turn to Christ and ask Him to come into our life and then He pays the penalty for us. And so clearly Jonah was a prophet of God, but it was a conditional prophecy. Its condition is that if the people would repent, then God would not do what He said. Now, here is a very clear prophecy that gives us a principle. The same thing would be true then for Israel. So let's take a look at that. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, second book of the Bible. And I want to show you the conditions that God laid down for Israel for them as a nation to be His favored people. Exodus chapter 19, look with me starting in verse 3. The Bible says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, what's the next word? If... 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So here we see that God had laid a condition on His promises that they would be His favorite people forever. If they kept His law, if they kept His covenant, if they loved Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and body, He would be their God, and they would be a special people to Him. And so they needed to obey His voice. They needed to keep His covenant in order for them to perpetually be the favored nation of God. Now, I'll say this to you, that there are many people that believe that the single most prophetic fulfillment in recent history was on May 14th of 1948, when you had the rebirth of the state of Israel. This is the single most written about, supposedly fulfilled prophecy in modern time. And if you remember what was going on there, in the mid-40s you had the Second World War, and you remember what was going on at that time with the Jews, right? Hitler was trying to kill all of them. You had the Great Holocaust, And after the Second World War, then, there was this great sympathy for the nation of Israel. And there was a call by the whole world to bring them back into and reestablish the state of Israel and to give them their independence. And so there are Bible prophecy teachers who say that was a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And then, of course, you have Israel whose neighbors accosted them and had war with them, and Israel fought back, and they were able to maintain their independence. But many people believe that this regathering of the nation of Israel is ultimately God working on their behalf and restoring them as His favored nation. But I want to show you a little bit of God's conditions that were required for the regathering. So let's look at that. Turn with me to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I want you to notice what it says starting in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the cursing which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all of the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So here we see that in order for the nation of Israel to be regathered together, they had to meet the conditions of verse 2. Did you see that? They needed to return to the Lord their God. They needed to obey their voice with all of their heart and mind and soul, right? That was the condition for the regathering. And we see that throughout 
the Old Testament. You can go to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm not going to take you there, but let me just read to you a couple of verses. It says in Nehemiah 1, verse 8 and 9, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out to the farthest parts of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So here we clearly see that God said in order for the nation of Israel to continue to be his favored nation, even though they have fallen away and he scattered them, if they would return to him, if they would give their hearts wholly to him, if they would keep his commandments, then he would regather them. And so there was a condition to that regathering, wasn't there? Number two, there are many people that also believe that Israel's birth as a state is a direct fulfillment of prophecy because of the fact that they are there in Israel now that this must mean that God is regathering them together. But what did we just see were the conditions. And this is what we need to look into. Did they meet the conditions in order for this to be a fulfillment of Bible prophecy? I want you to remember something. Remember back when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and God took them through the Red Sea. He took them to the land of Canaan and He wanted to take them into the land But Moses sent out 12 spies, right? And you'll remember that 10 of them came back with a faithless report. And you'll remember that they said, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't take them, essentially, right? I want you to notice God's response to them in Numbers chapter 14. God says, but as for you... Your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness, and you shall know my what? My breach of promise. That's what it says in the King James. But in the New King James, it says, you shall know my rejection. God had promised them that he would take them into the promised land. But now that they've got there, now they're saying, we can't do it. We can't take it in. And God is essentially saying to them, but I promised you, I will get you in. But they were a faithless people. And so God says, I'm going to take you back out into the wilderness and you're going to die there. And do you remember what happened after God said that? Now, all of a sudden, the people changed their mind. Numbers 14, verse 40 says, here we are and we will go to the place which the Lord has promised us, right? Now they want to cling to the promises of God. Now they're saying that now that they've seen their awful fate, they've got to go back out into the wilderness and die. Now they're saying, okay, we changed our mind. We're going to cling to the promises of God. But God essentially said to them, don't go, right? They decided to go to war and what happened? They were defeated, Because God was not with them. They had not met the conditions and God did not go with them. 
If you go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says that God does not change. You go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So if God was not with Israel when they did not believe what He said back then, would we expect that God would be with the nation of Israel today when they have rejected the one that He sent them as their Messiah? That would be totally different than anything that God has done before, right? Now, I want to show you something important here. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. This is called the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 39 and 40. It says, And all of these, talking about all of those patriarchs who died in faith, it says, All of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, if you don't catch what's going on there, let me take you back and let's look at a couple more verses. Look with me starting in verse 13. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come, they would have had an opportunity to return there. But now they desire a better, that is a what? A heavenly country. So here we see that even though the nation of Israel didn't go into the promised land right away, they eventually did, didn't they? God eventually, after that generation died, God was able to head up the group by Joshua and take them into the promised land. But notice here in Hebrews chapter 11, it's telling us that even though there were some that went into the land, they still didn't receive the promise of God. That's because the promise is not for an earthly Canaan. The promise is for a heavenly one, right? And so taking the nation of Israel and regathering them into the Middle East and that place called Israel today is still not a fulfillment of the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? That's where the promises of God will be fulfilled. Not in the nation of Israel, not in the physical location of Israel on this earth, but rather the heavenly Canaan that God has promised. Now let me show you something else. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 22 and 23. Galatians 4.22 For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. So here, in yet another way, we see a distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. The ones who are born of the promise 
are the ones that all of the promises of God are given to. And you'll remember this too. Remember when Jesus went into the temple and He cleared out the temple? Do you remember that? And He said, My house is a house of prayer. Right? It says that in Matthew 21 verse 13. But then you go to the end of that chapter after they had rejected Him as the Messiah... And in Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39, he says to them, your house is left to you desolate, right? He was showing them that they were no longer the favored nation of God, that the gospel was going to go to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, the church, was now spiritual Israel, and they would be the ones that would be getting all of the promises. You remember in Matthew 18, when Peter came to Jesus, and he said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? What did Jesus say? He said, no, 70 times seven. So if you take that 70-week prophecy and times it by seven days a week, Jesus was saying, look, I gave you 490 years to get it right. You should forgive for as long as I have. That's what he's essentially saying. So at the end of that 490 years, Stephen is stoned by the leaders of the Jewish nation, and immediately after that rejection, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Paul is converted. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter goes to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And so we have now the spiritual Israel, right? The gospel is taken from physical Israel, and it's given to spiritual Israel, the church, and they go to the world. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And so the promises are for you and me. The promises are for those, whether Jew or Gentile, whoever has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The promise is for those who belong to Christ. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29 says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so there is no special reuniting of the Jews that we should be looking for for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy because the promises are all fulfilled in Christ. The promises are all for spiritual Israel, not physical Israel. We are not looking for an earthly Canaan. We are looking for a heavenly Canaan. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, it says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. Here we see that the promises are for spiritual Israel, not earthly Israel or physical Israel. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 says, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have what? Have no confidence in the flesh. One of the apostles said, don't think that just because you're of the genealogy of Abraham, that means you're automatically saved, right? 
We all have to be saved through faith in Christ. And the focus of the Christian world on the physical nation of Israel fulfilling the prophecies needs to be reevaluated. And so I just want to close this morning with an appeal to you. When we come to the end of Bible prophecy and we're looking at Israel, it seems that all eyes today are on physical Israel. But I want you to think about this for a minute. At the first advent of Christ, the world was looking for a conquering Messiah. Amen? And therefore they missed the suffering servant. And so I ask you, could it be that at the second coming of Christ, that everyone is looking to physical Israel, and as a result of that, are they going to miss spiritual Israel? That's my contention. And so we need to be in prayer, don't we? We need to try and help, as we can, the world to understand Bible prophecy in a more accurate way. Israel was named Israel because he wrestled with God and overcame. And he received a new name. And the same is true for us. The only people that are going to be Christ's are those who wrestle with God and receive a name change. Have you received your name change? Are you a Christian? And have we understood the truth of Bible prophecy? That all of the promises of God are for those who live by faith. Those who have the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham and they are the children of the promise. Is that the desire of your heart? Do you want to be among that group? If you do, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of prophecy. We thank you that you have revealed to us who all of the promises of God are given to. They're not given to the physical nation of Israel. Not all of Israel are Israel, but only those who have the faith of Abraham. And Lord, that means that we too can be grafted in. We too can be a part of that spiritual Israel. And so Lord, we pray that you would not only have begun a good work in us, but you would continue it, bring it to completion. And Lord, help us to share the truth with all of those around us. We thank you for the promises. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And we pray that you would raise us up to be just like him. We ask it in his name. Amen.